I'm Eileen Mancera, co-chair of PE Wins Communications Committee. For those of you joining for the first time, Moments That Made Her is a production of the Private Equity Women's Investor Network, also known as PE Win. We are the preeminent organization for senior-level women investment professionals in private equity. PE Win provides its members with opportunities to network, share ideas, make deep connections with peers, and empower each other to succeed. Our mission is to increase the profile of women in private equity, and our members represent institutions with over $3 trillion in assets under management. To learn more, please visit pewin.org. The host of Moments That Made Her is Kelly Williams. Many of you know Kelly as the founding chair of PEWIN, as well as the founder of the legendary private market solution business known as Customized Fund Investment Group, which she and her team grew to manage $30 billion of assets under management until she let it sail in 2014. She is the CEO of the Williams Legacy Foundation and serves on the board of Greenbrier Companies and chairs the board of the Smithsonian American Art Museum. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. Welcome to Moments That Made Her. I'm Kelly Williams, the CEO of the Williams Legacy Foundation and the founding chair of the Private Equity Women Investor Network. I am thrilled that my guest today is Kate Mitchell, co-founder and partner at Scale Venture Partners. Welcome, Kate. Thank you. It's great to see you, Kelly. In any venue, I'll take it. And this is a great good Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, those of you who know P.E. Wynn, know that Kate and I have been partners in the development and growth of P.E. Wynn for many years. She's one of my dearest friends and a real girl boss and somebody I really look up to. I am so excited to have this conversation. I want to start with her where I start with everybody, which is tell us a little bit about how and where you grew up. Well, it's been fun listening to all these. And by the way, it's great to be not only with you, but all of our listeners. There's a sisterhood and, and those who appreciate the sisterhood and it's good to be together. And there's a commonality in some of these. Um, I grew up in a small town east of San Francisco called Stockton, California. My family actually immigrated to the neighborhood from Italy, my father's family, uh, to the neighborhood I live in now in San Francisco called North Beach. But we grew up in Stockton, California. It's farm country, flat. Uh, people say, you know, oh, you're from California. Do you surf? Like, no. <laughs> I was the oldest of five daughters. My dad was a civil engineer, so he did water systems, levees, things like that. And my mom was a nurse. So kind of a simple, simple upbringing. In many ways, small towns have a lot of advantage. My dad had five daughters, but he and his work was one of the first to hire an engineer out of Stanford. He had five daughters and we all had a sport and he referred to us as the guys. So he, he kind of had the, the view that we could play, whether it was sports or our professional careers, which he really supported our education as any male could and, and really drew no distinction from that standpoint. Um, I went to boarding school for high school in Monterey, partly because there were some troubles with the public schools were having some challenges in Stockton. And 
he said to me, this is your inheritance, your education, spend it wisely. I was lucky enough to go on and, and graduate an undergraduate from Stanford with a degree in political science. And I minored in something that was not yet an undergraduate major, computer science. You could do a master's in the industrial engineering school. I know the dinosaurs, Kelly's laughing, art didn't roam the earth at the time. I'm laughing, yes. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so I took all the computer science I could. I took accounting at the business school. They don't have an undergraduate business school. So kind of really formed a kind of an interesting and as talk about my life later, th those threads continue to play together at some point. And um, my father ended up dying of a heart attack I, a month after I graduated from college. And that idea, the, this is your inheritance, spend it wisely, became so true. And that was really kind of laid the groundwork for the rest of, of my life. Um, and I treasured it. I, I treasured him. I treasured my family. Um, all of us, my youngest sister was five, had to grow up pretty fast. So, you know, a great upbringing, a sudden entry into the world as an adult. I was so fortunate my family well equipped me for it. And to this day, all my co-pilots, my sisters, that's why I love the sisterhood at PEWIN. I have three sisters left. Unfortunately, one passed away. But we just constantly talk and stay close and our partners in everything we do all the time. So I'm fortunate for where I came from. Yeah, I mean, you and I have talked about this before because we both come from an Italian background. My dad didn't have five daughters. He had two, but he called us his pals and his partners. So we were definitely one of the guys. I didn't even have a concept that I couldn't be anything I wanted to be as my father felt very strongly that you could be whatever you want and it doesn't matter if you're a girl and it doesn't matter if you don't come from money. We were not limited, at least at, at the way we were brought up. So it's very similar. Yeah, it's interesting, too, the role that both of us have with male allies. I mean, male allies, like our fathers, can have a huge um, impact on women and the success in their careers, obviously, in addition to women supporting and believing in each other. But um, I think that's an interesting commonality. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I think both of us are very comfortable in male environments since we spent almost our entire career exactly. in them. But at the same time that, you know, kind of recognize the challenges and connect with other women about the common experiences with that we've had. So what was your very first job? Did you have a job as a teenager or, you know, in college? So my first job was, um, well, I, of course, I, my father had the belief, hardworking. I'm sure your, your family too. You know, I'd get home from school on a Friday and he wanted to know what I was going to be doing on Monday. None of this loafing around, getting a suntan stuff, you know, thank goodness now. <laughs> he was smart. So I worked for him for a long time doing blueprints and stuff like that. But I, my first real job, you'll appreciate this, was at a place called Trebino's. It's a restaurant in Stockton, long closed, kind of downtown by the local courts. And I went into interview and Josefina um, and her husband, Butch, but Josephina ran the place. So my first, you know, strong female model in addition to my family, but in a workplace environment, she had a beehive hairdo, cat glasses. I mean, she was right out of central casting and she was just tough on me in this interview. I mean, I'd interviewed at sandwich shops and ice cream shops and I go into Drabino's where I, I wasn't aware at the time of our family connection until the end of the conversation. But so I thought, wow, this woman, she's really, she's really tattooing me, you know, I, with, with her comments, like I'm not passing this test. And uh, she was, she was pretty tough. And at the very end, I, I was convinced like, well, this is a good learning experience as an interview, but this is not going well. And um, she was really testing my, my toughness. And did I mean it? Would I work hard? And at the very end of the conversation, she took one look at me. And she said, 
your grandmother hired me and my first grandmother. I'm going to hire you. Don't mess it up. <laughs> I didn't realize that my grandparents are in a five wow. and dime in Stockton. And I will tell you, she was one of the best. She, she had to be tough because her job was tough. Um, she was in the top part of town. Um, it's a tough business. She really ran the place. Her husband was a clan hander, um, keeping all the financials in order. But she supported a staff, which included an ex-con dishwasher who she helped it recover his life. I learned so many life lessons from her as a female leader. She was one of the kindest people. And you'll love this. You know, we served what Americans thought of as Italian food, you know, ravioli and spaghetti and stuff like that. We'd get done with lunch. And she'd have a real Italian meal, grilled vegetables, you know, <laughs> grilled meats, a splash of garlic, little pesto. I mean, stuff that nobody else really knew about. But, but what I learned from her as a leader uh, really stayed with me. And what I learned is I didn't, I liked the challenge. I loved my coworkers, the mental challenge of keeping 15 tables in order. Uh, I was the family ATM because of my tips and that was very motivating. So I love the people. I like being part of a team. I liked working hard. I liked the experience. I liked the idea of, of having money to spend. Um, so all of it really formed a, a great, thank you, Josephina. May you rest in peace, I'm sure, um, for your for your life lessons. It was a great foundation for me. Well, that's fantastic. Now, you never told me that story before. That That's amazing. Um, it is funny. You know, you just never know when someone's going to pop into your life who has a little bit of perspective. And it's amazing how many of the life lessons that you take along in your life, you realize when you look back, they happened very early. They happened with those early bosses, you know, positive or negative. You know, our listeners have heard me say before my first job was at Dairy Queen. My my bosses were Italian and there was the mean brother and the nice brother. The mean brother owned the place and the nice brother ran the place. And so I learned a lot from the mean brother that, you know, how not to treat people. Um, mm -hmm. I also learned that the ni nice brother was a little too easy on all of us and, <laughs> you know, probably could have been a, lo a little bit tougher. But it's funny, my sister went to our, I don't even know what reunion it was. I guess it was probably our 40th or 45th reunion last year and sent me a picture with the nice brother. He was his, because his wife was the same age as me. <laughs> she ran into him at our reunion. So it was, and he remembered me. I mean, it's so funny that many oh years God. later. I know. Crazy. So funny. Well, given that start at Turbino's, how'd you make your way to, to venture capital? How, how did that path go? And, and the other thing I will say is you and I have a very similar educational background because I was a private equity math major. I had a double major and I took computer science classes. And I, I will admit that fast forward 30 years later, when people started talking about coding, I was like, oh, coding. Wow, that must be really hard. You know? And I'm like, wait, that's computer science. That's, that's the I same did thing. <laughs> I know. I, I did that. I, in fact, I was a straight A student in it, but I, I did not make the connection that those were the same things. Well, I'll tell you, it's funny. When I, I, my career in finance starts early, I, I was a teller when I, at Stanford when I was a student. So I'd ride my bike out of campus. And I graduated in 1980 when it was the first, you know, big, big recession. It makes even 2008, frankly, look small. I actually started early on using tech. I was around, we were launching, it's like, again, along with computer science, sounds like ancient history, but the first interest-bearing accounts were being launched. I got to work on that. I went over to work um, at B of A and helped them sell three and a half billion worth of distressed um, assets um, in a resolution trust type sale. And again, through all that, I was actually using a lot of technology. So 
I found in the case of those three and a half billion dollars of assets, the better the information, the better the price. So we installed and we had a big glass house, meaning an IT department at Bank of America, then headquartered in San Francisco. Yet my little group installed the first lands and WANs so we could collect the information on the assets better, calibrate them so the buyers could look at them. And we took what was marked at 50 cents on the dollar and sold it at 80 cents on the dollar. I created a goodwill problem for the CFO. That was not bad. I became the first and youngest to see, uh, senior vice president in banking. Uh, there's, you know, layers of banking are, are famous. And then I went on to, to really be more tech first in the early 90s, launched online banking for B of A. And we were the first bank to have a URL to be on the web. It was the wild, wild west. This guy named Mark Andreessen came and helped us install some middleware, which they thought they'd sell as a product. It never went further than our work. Middleware on top of our ATM, that became what was our online banking system. And they still have a great system today. And I got done with that. And I realized that part of what really made me excited, and I was lucky, banks were very um, open. And I say this to women that are looking at, you know, that sometimes shirk at the idea of of opportunities uh, explicitly being given to women, I had the I took advantage of that. My view was all that did was open the door. I had to walk through it and do something great on the other side, and I applaud banks and entities that that make those chances because you're, you're not going to get a free pass once you walk through through the door for sure. So I was lucky. There was a lot of support for that, and and always when I'd have these very successes, given the opportunity to run a large part of what we would think of as traditional banking. It just sounded horrible to me. And I remember talking to a, a series of actually male mentors who were towards the end of their careers. And one of them talked about different kinds of people and that there's some people that that excelling at running big, large, sort of consistent organizations, keeping them running on time. And there are people that see referred to it as building cathedrals that like taking something from scratch and they don't know if it'll fall. They don't know if it'll ever get done. They might not even be alive when the thing even finishes. But they really like starting things that are new and they like risk. And I thought, that's me. I, I was, whether it was this online banking, whether it was distressed real estate, I liked the thing that was new that had some risk of failure. And I was being offered some great opportunities by then CEO Dave Coulter, who went on to Warburg Pincus um, after the bank was sold to, to Nations Bank. I, but I looked at him and said, I'm just ready to do something new. So I joined the venture subsidiary where I was, again, using both finance and tech. But in this case, investing in tech. And I never looked back. And we spun it off to be independent in the early 2000s. So we you know, developed today what, we, what is Scale Venture Partners. And we went from being a subsidiary of you know, one of the largest companies on the planet to being a startup that could fail ourselves, by the way. Um, so enlightening. And it was during that journey, I, we probably met each other because it was then CSMP. Yeah, because that's when we, that's when we invested with you guys. Yeah. yeah. And, and you guys were great early partners and helped us get into business. And like Josephina, appropriately and healthily put us through our paces. That put us in a great place going forward. So that bonded us from the beginning. And um, so we then went on, went on from there. And, and I've liked the risk. Um, and, and, but I'd say that was a journey for me. And I, if I think about the lessons that I could take earlier in my career, you know, a lot of women were all really good at being good straight A students and doing the right thing. We sometimes, and you and I both in our careers, were attracted to things that had some risk. We were willing to, to lean a little bit forward such that we might fall. Um, but it's really when you advance, you know, advance when you do that. And sometimes you do fall, um, but you get up and you move forward. And I think it's that piece of my career that I'm thrilled I had. And if I had any, any, you know, advice for other people listening, 
try to take some risks earlier in your career if you can. Uh, my regret wasn't taking risk. It was maybe even taken a little bit earlier, but that's how I made my way to venture. Yeah. You know, I would agree with you on that. You know, I'm interested in your perspective because like me, you've kind of done both the corporate ladder and then starting your own business. Um, I And I used to call that intrapreneur, like institutional entrepreneurialism. And I think it's actually, it's often an interesting path for women to your point about taking some risk, because if you have a career that at some point is within an institution, they will often give women and pe people in general, but certainly women, a little bit more chance to take on responsibility, you know, take a leap. I, I remember when Art Ryan came in as our CEO after years of having actuaries as the CEO of Prudential Insurance Company, and Art Ryan came from Chase, and he sort of instituted the 80-20 rule. And he said, look, if you're not failing, you're not taking enough risk. And if you're not taking risk, then you're not doing your job. And so that was a very different mindset. And I, I I'm interested in your perspective on that, given that you you experienced both sides. Oh, absolutely. And I'd say, let's take venture capital as an extreme risk, but one that these days, when I started, by the way, venture was not a very well-known business. My husband worked at Apple for many years and being down in Silicon Valley, he was more aware than most. But when I started in the business, people were, you know, I just would say I was an investor. But when you look at the math now that, I mean, people know about the successes of venture and you know this as an investor in the asset class, but you know, 30% of our deals abjectly fail. Don't return the capital that's put into them, sometimes nothing. A third return, you know, one and a half to two times money. You, as an asset manager, I now sit on investment committees. We can get that return a, a lot of other places, particularly when you load in those losses. And it's really roughly plus or minus 20% of your portfolio back to the 80 20 rule. Again, when you were investing in assets, are we going to be consistent about that 20, 20%? But I think that idea that, you know, if we think about the competitiveness of the United States, if we think about us as being competitive, as successful, particularly women in business, being able to stretch and take risk is when you really grow and achieve. That's actually how we make money. We don't make money in things that are the way they were yesterday. We make money when somebody's trying something new, and at, which, of course, again, has a chance of success or failure, or maybe it'll be successful for a period and then be subsumed by something else. And that story is well written, that creative destruction in Silicon Valley. So to me, that idea of, of risk is important to economic growth and, and investing in change. And that echoes for us as individuals that that... You know, I hope to be learning as I'm tipping into the grave. Um, but I think that's what makes us successful and also makes us, I think, appreciate other people in a way. Because when you know you've also fallen and skinned your knees, at least the way I look around, you know, who am I to tell somebody we're all trying to get better at what we do? I think taking that mentality that we're all part of a team, we'll have our good days and our bad days. I just think that entire mentality and whether we're working on teams, whether we're investing, whether it's our own career, sometimes even our personal lives. I think that's part of what being human is. Yeah, I agree. You know, I we've often heard that women are risk averse and, you know, they're afraid to take risk. That's not been my experience, but maybe it's because I spent my career in private equity. I think, you know, by definition, we learn how to analyze risk. As a lawyer, you learn how to analyze risk. Um, of course, it's the business person's decision whether or not to take the risk. So for me, it was interesting going from a lawyer to a business person. But I also think the other thing about risk-taking for women and, and who have careers in private equity and venture is that so many of us 
if you've made it to the senior ranks, you are the primary breadwinner in your family. And so you need to keep laddering up, which means you need to keep taking risk. Has, has that been your experience? Oh, absolutely. I think you just can't rest on your laurels. And it's interesting to this point, I joined a, a group of, and this is early in my career, it was a group of 20 people that were sponsored by a bank to come get together and in venture and, and have a weekend together. And we all sat around and at one point we started going around and talking about our families and our lives. And out of, I think there were at, at sitting on the beach at that time, I think there were maybe nine of us and eight of us were the breadwinners in our family. It's like, wow, because to do the work that we were trying to do. And at the time that was so rare. We all agreed, by the way, our husbands were A, amazing and B, had a lot of sense of themselves because in a male at the time, going in a room and saying that your career was to support your wife was not such an easy thing to do. So I think it, that spoke a, a well of everybody in those relationships. But but your point about, I think, as you get further in your career, and you know, one of the things that I love so much about PE Win is that we're trying to take women who are already been successful at a certain level already, but helping us both sustain our success and maybe even accelerate that success going forward. And I think one of the things I've found about our network is having my peers and some to go to, and sometimes my peers coming to me as they're hitting that friction. Because what happens is I think that growth is sometimes accompanied by some friction. It may be a competitor who doesn't want you to succeed or seems uh, you know, that you can't conquer them. It may be someone in your partnership who you may feel is wanting to thwart your move ahead. It may be the impression of you know, your, what you believe your impression is of your investors. I've come to realize quite the opposite in terms of institutional investors in private equity. But I think having that group to kind of say to you from time to time, and this is where I think we can use, because networks are so important in everything that we do in private equity broadly, certainly in venture, it's our lifeblood, but making sure that you have that sort of, and we prefer to this as we think about circles, something we're copying from YPO at PE when this idea of having a personal board of directors, but having people that you can actually use as your allies, as you think you're encountering some friction and you're thinking, you know, maybe I should just not lean forward so much. I, I, maybe that friction is telling me something. No, the, the friction may mean you need to, to iterate to your path to success, but it might help you hone your path to success. Don't stop moving forward. But having your peers around you, I think is a pretty magical part, particularly as you hit that mid later stages of your career where you're establishing yourself and you have fewer people to talk, to encourage you to go forward. I think that's pretty important and pretty powerful. So I wanna turn this to you specifically. Are there specific turning points you can think of in your career as, that you think help ladder you into senior positions in the industry? Well, you know, I think it's a couple things. One was, yeah, I still remember talking to Dave Coulter at the time, and he said, you know, you're leaving the fast track to go to this little venture, you know, entity. The conviction I had and that was the right thing was probably a, a first big turning point. I'd say the second big turning point was we, at the time, got really all of our capital from B of A. It was part of their holding company capital, and they, it was successful. I think the executives enjoyed it. Um, you know that having a single point of uh, source of capital, never a good thing. But at the time, it was post-2000, so it was a dot-com crisis. Not a great time to go out and, and raise a fund. So we wanted to continue to grow and learn. We were developing LP relationships again, like you and, and many others to help us think about how to do that. But we thought we had some time. I remember exactly where I was sitting 
And I met with a then CFO of Bank of America who basically fired us <laughs> in a graceful way. They were big supporters of, our, of us being orderly and the way we moved off. But all of a sudden that safety net disappeared overnight. I remember walking out and standing on Montgomery Street in San Francisco thinking, rut row. Um, you know, and I called my <laughs> co-founder Rory and said, well, we wanted to be independent. Yippee, we're independent. And starting to write our business plans together and going forward. That that stimulus of that fear, and you went through that in your own, that, the entrepreneur. I love that idea. Um, you know, we really got shot out of a cannon in that regard. By the way, thankfully, that happened not long after the dot-com crash, because had we waited until 2008, we would have shot out of the bank like a cannon. So, you know, that it was orderly, I think was really helpful. I'd say the next trajectory for me was when we were starting to raise, I think it was our third fund or so, our fourth fund, maybe it was our third fund. And we realized that it's such a, it's a long-term business. I mean, you don't know in venture whether or not a deal is good until after 10 years. And so you're lost to show early. You know what you're not good at earlier. And you know that risk exists early, the J curve, but your wins and the substance and the size of those wins are dependent on many things. But in any event, they have them later. But it was just at that point of that third or fourth fund that we realized this is a sustainable model and I had started getting involved with what was then the National Venture Capital Association. In fact, I went to their my first annual meeting of that, and I was walking around a corner. And when I was with B of A, I'd helped launch a company it, with uh, what was then Nations Bank that we later merged with and IBM called Integrion. And we'd hired a marketing uh, team, a CEO there was on the board and uh, a head of marketing and PR for the entity. And I'm walking around a corner at, at the National Venture Capital Association, still a new-ish, you know, VC, feeling I was kind of a quasi-novice in the industry. And I go around the corner, and this woman looks at me, and we both stop and say, what are you doing here? And it's Emily <laughs> Mandel, now the executive director um, of, of PEWIN, then head of marketing and communications and strategy at the NVCA. And of course, she hadn't realized I joined venture. I didn't realize she was a part of the NVCA. And interesting that my involvement, but frankly, this is back to the power of networks. My connection with Emily was not an insignificant aspect of my becoming more involved nationally and with the industry and really realizing that now that scale was far enough along and I was starting to you know, I came out of a group of emerging managers, True Ventures, Emergence, you know, Foundry. There were whole groups of us that kind of emerged about the same time. And in particular, I was reaching out to women and, and other groups just sort of privately within the firm or, or that I knew. But it was getting to know Emily and getting involved with MBCA and then getting on the board in, in that was 2008 or nine. Uh, forgetting my dates here. Time flies when you're having fun. Um, and I became chair. That was in 2010 and 11. It was that, the, you know, realizing that I can be, you know, I have to be mercenary in some ways on behalf of my investors. My objective is to return multiples of capital for them. But I can be missionary at the same time. I'm borrowing that line, by the way, from Ted Schlein, an old friend um, who has his own fund now, ran Kleiner Perkins for many years and served on the NBCA with me, a, a board chair ahead of me. And that's, but I, it was when you can really matter and make an impact more broadly and when I became chair, I remember, you remember, might remember Russ Garland, who was at Dow Jones at the time. He followed, in particular, was a big supporter of women in the industry. And when I was walking on stage to become chair in front of 700 
primarily men in the audience. He said, is this the year of the woman? I said, look at that crowd. Don't talk about that. I want to be, <laughs> I want to show, not say what I'm going to do. And it was when I stepped down, Ray Rothrock, now an entrepreneur, but had been with Venrock at the time, as I was stepping down, said nice things about me leaving, but also called out the fact that, gosh, there's something different about this person that I'm thanking for being chair of the NBCA and this audience. And it's the fact that she's a woman and she made some amazing accomplishments during the year. And I just burst into tears because that's what I wanted. I wanted people to see that success could wear a dress. But getting, Emily was a catalyst, but getting involved at the industry level. And that really, it was during that time that I got more involved in, in PE Win. Um, I, after I left as chair, I passed something called the Jobs Act. We can talk more about that, helping small companies go public. I authored section, co-authored with Joel Trotter, an attorney at Latham Watkins, something called Section 100, the path to IPO for startups. The NBCA was really supportive of that. Something on behalf of entrepreneurs, very exciting. And then went on to have leadership roles at PE Win. We helped spawn a spinoff of the NBCA called Venture Forward, where I'm currently chair, helping women and minorities launch their careers in venture. So it's been a great road. So there are just a couple of trajectories. That one of them that this was that hallway and seeing Emily both saying, what are you doing here? That was my road to, to industry work. It was a lot of fun. So roads reconvene. Such a great, such great examples. Um, in particular, uh, the one about NVCA because I, and I love the mercenary missionary um, phrase because I think we all have experienced, particularly as women, because we're so busy and there are so many aspects to our lives that we just think there's no room for anything else, right? I've got family, I've got work, and whatever else is essential. And I realized until I gave myself permission to say yes to things that I cared about, that's when your career really blossoms. Because as you say, you find like-minded people. Women in particular can often be your biggest cheerleader and your biggest public relations. And that's when you start getting noticed for what you do. I mean, you can stay and keep your head down and do your work. And there's nothing wrong with that if that's how you want to live your life. But I really think it's incumbent upon women to say yes to things because the more people see women succeed in the way you said, and the, you know, having Ray Rothrock recognize the difference when women are in charge and that it's good for everybody. It's not just good for women. It's good for everybody when women take the reins of power. You know, Kelly, you're so right. And I think that you and I have both done this. We've coached women that getting up on a stage and speaking in front of people, accepting an award, our first, and you and I don't do this ourselves, our first insta instinct is to deflect to a certain level and say, oh, oh, I want to thank the crowds. And as my husband always says, the first thing you should say is thank you. <laughs> um, but more importantly, it's often stop thinking so much about yourself. And I always used to think people didn't pay to come see me be nervous. They want, A, they wanted my content, but what I wanted was to show the men and the women in the audience that a woman could be effective and that if we think of ourselves when we get up on those stages, not so much as selfishly accepting acknowledgement, but actually accepting his knowledge as a pattern recognition for other younger women in the audience, for the men in the audience to see within their firms and their board tables and other things. And I agree with you saying yes, although I will say I work with a current head of HR and a public company I'm on the board of, and she said, when I look at your LinkedIn profile, Kate, I want you to put behind your computer, just say no, because you said yes too much. But that's a nice problem to have. I agree with you. I think it's, you said it well, it's finding the time. We want to be the good students. 
We think there's never enough time. We think that we can get something right out to the 10th decimal point. But I think sometimes it's deciding what's urgent, but also what's really important. And sometimes what's important isn't urgent. You need to say yes, and you'll find the impact you can have personally, but to the industry and for your peers and for others that you want to follow in your footsteps, it's huge if you say yes. So I like your mantra. Yeah, I agree. I think I, in my own experience, I just find that your time expands for those types of things. The other thing I think is really essential is that I really don't think women have need a lot of training around leadership. I think women are natural leaders. I think it's encoded into our DNA. I think women really have more issues around followership, and it's not something that we are coached on. And I think people need to see you win. Your team needs to see you win. Your partners need to see you win. And other people in the industry need to see women, not just you personally, but women winning. As you said, it's that pattern recognition. Because then they realize, oh, it's not just like a one-off. This is actually like women are really good at this. Like women know how to make money. Women know how to raise money. Women know how to do deals. Women know how to start companies. And the way that ha it's happening all the time, women are doing this all the time. It's just not enough recognition is being given. And that was one of the reasons we started PE Win was to increase the profile of women in the industry. And to get us, and you know, frankly, one of the strengths of PE Win is getting us each comfortable in how we use, and I, I'll use a word that we all shirk at, but promote that success. That sounds so awful. It sounds inauthentic. But if you shirk away from, from wearing your success comfortably, I actually don't think you're doing, forget yourself, you're not doing your peers and the women behind you a favor because you want them to, they want to see you taking up that space because they want to be able to stand in that space behind you next. And I think it is, it's something we grapple with. I think followership, that's a great way of putting it. I think we just have to get comfortable and be authentic. We're not trying to be that arrogant, you know, whatever in front of a crowd and say, oh, lovely me. Um, but it's really being able to be ourselves and accept that success, but yet, but, but be, but be the group that likes the, the person that likes to see your whole team win too. That's sort of how we are. And it's, it, that's really modern leadership, by the way, for men and for women. So I think we were just a step ahead in that we love collaboration. Yeah, I agree. Well, we're going to take a quick break and we will be back shortly with Moments That Made Her. We would like to take a brief break to thank PEWIN's founding partner, KPMG, as well as our gold partners, Asia Alternatives, Kane Anderson, Kirkland & Ellis, Silver Lake, Toma Bravo, and TPG. If you are interested in partnership opportunities, please contact us at info at PEWIN.org. Now back to today's guest. Welcome back to Moments That Made Her. This is Kelly Williams, and I'm here with my guest, Kate Mitchell, the co-founder and partner of Scale Venture Partners. We're having the most amazing conversation. And so I want to ask, is there something that stands out to you that was a particularly fun or creative moment in your career? Fun or creative moment? I'd say for me, it was working on and passing the JOBS Act. And this was in 2012, as I was stepping down from the NVCA a couple of weeks before I stepped down, I was on a 
panel at the Treasury. You and I at the time were both doing a lot of work with the Treasury Department. I was working with Mary Miller there, and I was asked to be on a panel about access to capital for small businesses. I was on a panel talking about IPOs, and Geithner had this sort of speed, like, what's the one thing you could do to help small companies go public? And I said it wasn't one thing. It was a group of things. It had been studied by many participants in the market, and we've all given it some thought, that if we could make some modest changes, we could really open the gates. And he said, you know, the Mitchell Commission is born. I immediately renamed <laughs> it the IPO Task Force. And it became Section 100 of the JOBS Act. We got investment banks. It included uh, Credit Suisse, Stiefel, others at JMP, some smaller banks, some larger banks, Blair. It included issuers, both venture capitalists and entrepreneurs that were in the crowd. It included some people who had worked at the SEC before. Literally, we had people who had been on the regulatory side who were purchasers of securities, public securities, T. Rowe, Cross Creek, others. You know, We had every market participant around an IPO happened to be in that room that day in the cash room at the Treasury. We ended up taking a room down the hallway and we just huddled and said, let's do it. Now, I'm so, I thought because we were on C-SPAN that since I said I would do it, I had to. This was the good girl in me, you know, like, and when we finally passed the bill, somebody from, I guess it was Obama White House came up and said to me, we were so amazed that you took it so seriously. Most people get up and say they're going to do things. We never hear from them again. And you really did what you said you were going to do. Um, so much for my fear of having promised and feeling like I needed to deliver. And I remember saying to my husband, if absence makes the heart grow fonder, you'll be very fond of me because it was a sprint. We literally <laughs> did this in March. We formed this group in June. We And Emily was part of this at Mendel because the NBC supported us. It wasn't under the auspices of the NBCA, it was citizens. Steve Case became very active in this. And we put together some modest rules built on top of SEC framework, included things like confidential filing, emerging growth managers, things that now are very common in IPOs. We issued our report in September. It got formally submitted in October, got put in a bill in November. It got synthesized into what's now the Jobs Act in December. It was passed the following March and then signed into law about a year after that first meeting at Treasury. And it was just this amazing experience. So I'd say the moment that I can remember, and I... <laughs> This is like so awful. Here, my husband, who was so amazing and such a supporter of everything I did, I actually brought two entrepreneurs, Josh James and Scott Dorsey, instead of my husband, to the bill signing to the Rose Garden uh, because it was really for entrepreneurs and it was nice to do something that made it ancillary benefits, obviously, to both limited partner investors and venture investors in it. But it was really about even non venture sponsored entrepreneurs and those with IPOs thriving and being able to help the community like that. And how that impact was just so huge. And to sit feet away from a president in the Rose Garden signing a, a bill was pretty amazing. Actually, a, one of the signed copies of the bill is downstairs in our house. That was sort of transformative. And it was interesting because you go back to my life as computer science in my pocket when I was graduating from Stanford and a degree in political science. And this was finally the synthesis of the two. So it was a kind of an out-of-body experience in many ways. Yeah, incredible. I mean, how lucky were we to have somebody like you there? Because it's not often that the people who get invited into the room are people who actually understand. Plus, you brought a different perspective, again, as a woman and someone who's so committed to, to diversity and equity and inclusion. So, well, let's take the flip side, because all of us have had situations that didn't quite work out the way we wanted. Some might call them failures, others might call them challenges. But is there something that sticks out in your mind that ended up being really instructive for you where it, the lesson you learned was incredibly valuable? Well, you know, there are two elements to my 
lesson. And think about this for women. And there are some theories of thought about women, to your, and you mentioned it earlier, women perhaps being reticent about taking risk. My former partner, Sharon Weinbar, shared a line of thinking about education that little girls can be like teacups. They can be perfect, and then if they get shattered, it can be very difficult, the perfect teacup syndrome, it's called. And I don't consider myself an expert on that philosophy, but that resonated with me. And I'd say it's that idea of understanding that failure is part of what success looks like. My father, having had us grow up as athletes, I was a swimmer. I remember the first time I was asked to swim butterfly competitively, I lost so horribly and <laughs> crying in his arms. And that became my best. People ask where my shoulders had come from and my biceps come from, and it comes from all that butterfly that I swam as a little girl. And um, it became my best stroke. And as a woman uh, swimming that that sport, that uh, that that stroke, I, it, it was distinguished because not many little girls swam it um, at all, let alone well. And so that, I think that idea that you can turn a failure into success and the resilience as, as uh, and I, I've done some work with Neelu Howe, who's, who's done a lot of work in security space and, and cybersecurity, a venture investor out of, out of Washington. She and I talk, uh, refer to Coach K a lot at Duke, you know, next play, bring on that next play. And it's like Serena Williams. She misses shots all the time. Um, and yet, A, she had a coach, by the way, because she always felt she could get better. And I talk a lot about that with young people. And B, it was like, next play, throw, throw me another ball so I can hit it and nail it um, across the court. So I think it's that number one is understanding that's part of success. You're iterating your way to success. And every step of those ways, even by missing something, you're learning something because you think, I'm not going to do that same thing again. The other thing, there's kind of the census of that with this idea of networking and venture, you know, A, we, you know, failure is a big part of it, but B, so is networking and knowing people and really knowing them and understanding how to trust them, building relationships, even with people that are very different from them. And when I've had, you know, failures and particularly, you know, some that are higher profile than others, the thing that's come into play is not only that sense of resiliency, that life is long, our history is long, but also that there are those that can help you. And I will say in some of my toughest moments, the support of the network, and for me over the last few years, uh, women on public boards and really number one above all, the sisterhood of PE Win, of being there to talk to and to give you support. And you know, all of us have stories about that. It's just so important. I think the lesson out of it isn't simply that it's important to invest in your network and to give them what you can over time. I now look back when somebody's having a particularly tough time and I don't know what to say, and it could be something personal. They got divorced. Um, their spouse passed away. They have cancer. You know, things that sometimes are really hard to talk about. Reach out. Just say you're thinking of them. And I cannot tell you how empowering all the, you know, outreach in my tough days over time from sisters at PEUN in particular and Broadway Angels and many others, but particularly PUN have meant to me. PUN has played a really big element in what I've learned and how I want to give back to others when I get the chance. Don't shy away from reaching out to somebody who just had a pretty tough fall. Yeah, I agree. I think that being willing to wade in those really difficult moments, it returns to you 20-fold. So now I want to turn to one of our favorite parts of, of the podcast, which is our lightning round. My first question for you is, is there a great book you've read or listened to recently that you would recommend? Um, there's a book that our friend Jill Kazaki 
mentioned in her moments that made her podcast that we all should have on our shelves for many reasons. It's a beginner's guide to the end. Um, but there's a particular page in it that has in a way something to do about end or, you know, kind of the, the latter part of your life. And I want to read it for you because I'm thankful for Jill for giving this book to me. In particular, you're going to love this section. This is on one side of the page is a little ni nice line drawing of a tree. And it starts with consider the life of the tree and blah, blah. And it says, the tree's life cycle is as much about its own health as it is about the well-being of everything around it. In the 300-year lifespan of a big tree, for example, the first 100 years are about growing, the second 100 about living, and the final 100 about dying. The tree doesn't slow its growth as, as it ages. On the contrary, it actually grows fast in its dying phase. And rather than hoarding its assets all of the way to the end, it begins to give away the nutrients it has generated for the last 200 years to nourish the ecosystem around it. It sends nutrients and energy down to its root network, connecting it to hundreds of other species. The final 100 years is actually the most productive and generous period of its life. Isn't that amazing? So it's my favorite phrase. And I think about the things that so many of us at PUN, Kelly, I to, to look at you when I'm saying this I, to the listeners, I'm looking at Kelly on a video. Um, <laughs> you're a perfect example of that. Kelly, Dana, the leadership of PEWIN, that is so much of what powers a lot of us and giving beyond the private equity and venture community. And both of us do a lot of that through the arts and so many other things. I just find that that quote just so empowering. It's purpose-driven, you know. Um, the book I'm excited about, by the way, which kind of resonates with that, and I haven't read it yet, it's called 4,000 Weeks. That's the number of lives in an, a number of weeks in an average life. And it makes you focus like, oh, how many weeks do you have left? And are you spending your time on things that really matter with the weeks you have left? And uh, so those are, I think, two interesting codas. So I can't wait to read for a thousand weeks. I've been using it, at least when I believe it's principle to be quite a bit. So it's on my bedstand. Next, we'll be able to talk about that. So that wasn't a lightning round, but I felt I needed to No, no, that but piece. that was, but great. No, I'm so glad you did. I just love that because I feel like particularly for women who get to the top, it, it's such rare air. Some people can feel like there's only room for one. And so you don't necessarily reach out. And I think that analogy to the tree saying adding more generosity and adding more nutrients to other people is really the way to spend your life. I mean, I believe that. My own spirituality tells me there's no way that you would be penalized or not rewarded for being generous, especially to to good causes and, and to helping people. I think that's, that's a, a great, great analogy. Well, we have gravitas. Let's spend it. Yeah. Yeah. Great. All right. So, so what is your cell phone wallpaper? Well, you'll love it. It's actually the reopening of, of SF Mall. I did a big expansion a number of years ago, and there's this beautiful spray of confetti that came down on the street because you and I are both committed to to art and making art accessible to so many other people as education, a way to express themselves to the communities that haven't seen before. First, it's SM Moment, but then I have my Apple Watch, which has my grandnieces who are, are three and five and a half, Zoe and Vera, and that's who I get to look at um, and now on my Apple Watch. So it's a nice combination of the community and next generation of female leaders and, and our family, which is pretty exciting. So yeah. that's my wallpaper. 
My great niece and nephew are always my wallpaper. Um, so if you had a career other than venture capital, what would it be? Oh, it's easy, teaching. And it's funny, my dad did that. He taught engineering at UOP and he taught his daughters math. We all love math. I think it's teaching. The next generation has venture capital university. PE Win is a huge amount of educational programming. And I really love that. I'm very involved with Kaufman Fellows. Um, Melissa Richland is, is the chair there right now and really helping the new CEO there succeed and being mentor to many fellows over the years. My only rule about mentors is they need to be diverse. So they're women and people of color and, and around the world. It's been a lot of fun. So teaching would be easily my, and teach now in business schools. I, I just love teaching. Well, you per, a perfect thing for you to do. Um, are you a dog or a cat person? Oh, easy. Dog. Dog. We, we grew up with the St. Bernard. <laughs> I'm on for dogs. Cats. You know, they're a little, I, yeah. I, I know people love cats. I'm not dizzing cat people. Cats and I are a little, no, no. you know, I like dogs. <clears throat> they're overt in their affection. I'm all for that. For sure. Um, what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Don't burn bridges. You know, it's such a small world and people get so, you know, when you think about some of the polarization we live through right now and other things, you know, we have so much more in common than we have different lives become intertwined over time. And the person who you thought was your biggest competitor, well, 10, 15 years from now, you might find out, A, they had something else operating in the back of their mind. They might've been as fearful as you, as you were them, who knows. Um, but you might find they're a great ally down the road. So don't burn bridges. I'm, I'm all about that. Yeah, I agree. Every once in a while, I have to tamp down that Italian in me when my Italian you know, temper wants to come out. And, um, and I agree, that's excellent advice. It took me a long time in the early part of my career to realize that because, as you said, <clears throat> life is long, the world is round, it all comes back again, and you'll be given another chance probably. So keep that bridge uh, up and running. Yeah. So finally, what's one thing we don't know about you yet or that we'd be surprised to know about you? Well, you know, it's funny because I've been asked this on stage. I think I put this particular memory, I don't know, way deep down. Anyway, I had a brief career as a fashion model. You're, you're giggling. Uh, <laughs> the audience should be giggling. Anybody who uh, knows this I, five I'm not, two. I'm not, I mean, you're... I was going to say you're so beautiful, but 5'2", no. really? <laughs> well, I have to tell you my bio app. So I was in grade school. And my mother was in some kind of women's auxiliary in Stockton. And they had an annual fashion show. It was a big fundraiser for the community. And I was so happy. I finally got chosen to be a model. I was just like, oh my God. And I pictured wearing a dress that my mother would probably never let me have with like probably a big skirt fluffy skirt. You know, she had me in Florence Eisman things, a fluffy skirt. And I just had images of just princess in my head. <laughs> and like the day before the fashion show and, and that we even practiced the twirl, the walk, you know, you go, you put your foot out, you pause, you turn around, practice that in front of the bathroom mirror. I was ready to go. <laughs> we get the day before we go and we get what we're going to wear. I had footed pajamas. I was little, chubby, freckled. I had a bull haircut with bangs. I was, of course, they were going to put me in the printed, you know, the flannel footed pajamas. <laughs> I was devastated. My, my princess oh my vision God. I was, was in the, and then of course, whose picture was in the Stockton record, but the cute little girl in the pajamas. So I was even, you know, noticed as <laughs> I hung up my, I decided 
<laughs> being a model was not where I was going to go. So that was the beginning and end of my modeling career. So um, I'm ready for the PUN, that is you know, somber hysterical. parties. <laughs> it's about funny. I was just crushed. Yeah. Oh, oh anyway. my God, that is so funny. That's I never, you, you never told me that story before. I know. Oh I forgot gosh. that. I, it's so it's funny. one, but it was fun. It was fun. Every young girl can relate to that. Um, once again, we have something in common. When I went to college in Japan, I had a brief modeling career because the Americans there, we were all taller than everybody else. So we all looked like fashion models, even though I'm five, six. I remember going to the photo shoot and I did my own makeup and the whole shebang and we got our pictures taken. And then of course we went home. So I have no idea whatever happened to those photographs. <laughs> yeah. Could be, could be anything. Well, I have to look through my mom's stuff. We're moving her right now. And I have to see if I can find that photograph. I did not keep a copy of it, but I'm sure she did of me and my lovely little jammies. So, Oh my gosh, I love that story. Well, this, as I expected, has been amazing. Kate, thank you for being my guest today on Moments That Made Her. Well, thank you for being a great partner as we build and look to the next generation of leadership at PUN. It's been a fun journey to take together. I can't wait for the next part of our journey. I agree. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Moments That Made Her. I'm Scotty Wardell, co-chair of the PEWIN Communications Committee. As a reminder, the content in this recording is for general information purposes only and does not constitute advice. We give no assurance or warranty regarding accuracy, timeliness, or applicability of any of the contents of this recording. This recording is provided as is, and PEWIN expressly disclaims any and all warranties expressed or implied to the extent permitted by law. Except where acknowledged, the copyright and all intellectual property rights in all material in this recording are owned by PEWIN and our affiliates and should not be reproduced without our prior written consent. Other organizations or brand names used within this recording are for identification purposes only. The content set forth in this recording may not be sold, reproduced, or distributed without PEWIN's prior written consent. Any third-party trademarks, service marks, and logos are the property of their respective owners. Any further rights not specifically granted herein are reserved. Thank you again for joining us today, and we hope you tune in for another episode soon.